at 6 o'clock. I'm very disturbed. And so please come be in here, bring your Bibles, and come on out here. Where's that? Oh, my God. Here it is, right here. I better have my Bible for preaching. Amen. And so, um, ladies' Bible study tomorrow at 6 o'clock. And as fast as I can get the message back over here. And so it looks like what's an issue of it's just it's having trouble switching back and forth. And so we had to reset it last time. Zebedee, um, the father of John, 
his vision business was large enough to have multiple hired servants. And um, almost everything we observe about the personality and character of James that we talked about is also true of, his, uh, of John, the younger of the brothers. Uh, they had similar temperaments. Um, they were inseparable in the gospel accounts. You see them often together. So I used to say that's the good thing, that they were brothers that were supposed to um, want to be around each other um, long enough. And um, John was right there with James. So when they were eager to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans, um, he was also in the thick of the debates about who was the greatest. And so these two things weren't good. They, they wanted to be like Elijah and call down fire from heaven, um, destroy the Samaritans. But again, Jesus said, you know, he intended not to destroy lives, but to save them. And Jesus had to give them a message on humility. Now here they're arguing, and with their mother, their mother comes to Jesus and says, you know, would you grant um, that my sons would sit on your left and right um, of your throne in the kingdom. And then they would have a debate over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Oh, flesh, karma. You know, these are the apostles here. Uh, um, so we do see some early personality flaws. Um, and he was overly zealous to a fault. Um, he was extremely intolerant. Um, here in the um, he had a thirst for glory and prominence, and yet we see that he had, had an unwillingness to suffer. His thirst for glory is seen in his desire um, for the chief throne, as to Jesus. His aversion to suffering is seen in the fact that he and the other apostles forsook Jesus and fled on the night of his arrest. Now, John did end up coming later and kind of following um, 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 later on, but initially they all fled. And um, you know, it came uh, with John, he was the man that wanted to be truthful or wanted to be bold and um, would preach the Old Testament, so to speak, and um, would want to cry down and get fire from heaven and anyone that would um, do any death, want to do any harm to Jesus. Um, or others, today he was a man that was willing to take a stand. But just like, you know, many um, young preachers today, you know, there can be the strong temptation for young preachers to come blasting into the church, dump the truth on everyone, and expect an immediate response. Um, and sometimes preachers need to learn patience. You know, it's going to depend on where, where you're going, where your mission filled. Is. You know, uh, it's going to vary. You know, a, a nation that you know is filled with idolatry. You know, it's going to there's going to take time. You know, it's not often that you can go there and preach one message and then boom, national revival. Everyone just repents and uh, and burns all their idols up or burns their books on witchcraft. Um, and so sometimes, you know, God teaches, trains. The preacher to have a degree of tolerance, not tolerance for sin, but understanding that you know you need to pastor people where they're at and then try to bring them to grow in the Lord.
but everyone's not going to become a super mature Christian if the preacher first um, comes to a church. And so John needed to learn to have mercy. He needed to learn about the grace of God, about forgiveness, to learn to be tender, and to learn to have compassion. All the characteristics of love. And um, it's wonderful to be bold and thunderous. You see many of the preachers like that in the Bible. But love is the necessary balance to it all. And we do see through John's life, he does learn that balance. Um, we see um, he is the one in the Bible that the Bible says the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is not to say that Jesus didn't love any of the other apostles, okay? This is just how John wrote of himself, okay? And at first I used to think, you know, this is kind of bragging, you know, I'm the one Jesus loved. But after seeing John, see his early flaws and how he grew, I believe it was more of a humility, a humbling, and many times in talking about himself in the, in the book of John, instead of wanting to bring attention to himself by name, he refers to himself in the third person, is whom Jesus loved. Um, we see now there was a young Jesus, was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Um, um, it was at the Lord's Supper. Um, and we see then she runneth and cometh to Simon um, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And Simon, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. And um, we see in John 21, verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he heard his fishers go unto him, for he was naked, and had cast himself into the sea. And then in verse 20, then Peter turning about, seeing, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, fallen, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayed him? So, to some context, only the Gospel of John mentions in quotes, basically, this disciple whom Jesus loved. Second, in John 21, verse 2, it lets us know who was fishing with Peter. Um, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. The Apostle John was a son of Zebedee, we know that much. And then, third, there were three disciples who were especially close to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And, and so the disciple whom Jesus loved could not be Peter, as Peter asked a question in regards to this other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so that's it, we just kind of... Going down the line, just kind of um, the process of elimination, end up seeing that John was referring to himself when it talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, he told Jesus told Peter, "Feed my sheep." He told John, "Care for my mother," as he was being crucified. Several witnesses in early church history record that John never left Jerusalem and the care of Mary until she died. Um, it was in, it's in John 19, 26. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son, and say to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. 
So John was responsible um, for caring for the, the earthly mother of Jesus. You think about it, it may seem amazing that Jesus loved a man who wanted a word up to Samaritans. He loved a man who was obsessed with status and position, a man that was proud. He loved a man who forsook him initially and fled rather than suffer for his sake. But in love of John, Jesus transformed him into a different man, a man who modeled the same kind of love Jesus had shown unto him. And so there's something to keep in mind. There may be certain people that just irritate you. You just can't stand them. You know, it could be pride. It could be um, how hostile they are. And you know, instead of uh, battling back with the same kind of behavior they have towards them, it's showing them the love of God. Showing them the love of Christ. We see how love transformed um, him. Um, yesterday I was um, able to talk to Randy, um, um, Candace's husband, um, over a video um, conference call. And he was talking a little bit about his junior days when he was getting in trouble with the law. And then he talked about how if it is in trouble youth, that um, there were some people that were Christians and um, tried to have an influence on this life. And he said, even though I thought I was too cool and kind of pushed it aside, that you know what? Those little moments showing, seeing that care. Sometimes it could be a coach. Sometimes it could just be someone else, uh, some other man that, that he knew were Christians. And they weren't always preaching. They would be there, they would be there to share the word of God, but it was just the impact of time they spent with them, and that those were the seeds that eventually, later in life, he would accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so don't doubt the little impacts you could be making on kids today. Teenagers, troubled teenagers. Now maybe someone that just kind of came and ate your house on Halloween. Something I hope it has to happen. Hopefully that has to happen to our church amen. It's happened before. Um, but um, you know what? Loving people, even if they may mock you, despise you, make fun of you, and, and mock your faith, but the impact that you can make through seeing them transform by showing them the love of God. We see that John does end up eventually filling a unique and patriarchal role in the early church that lasted nearly to the end of the first century, reached deep into Asia Minor. We see his personal influence was therefore stamped on the primitive church well into the post-apostolic era. Um, we see here, now testimony, this Irenaeus says this, now testimony is born to these things in writing by Papias, an ancient man who was a hearer of John, and a friend of Polycarp, and the fourth of his books, for five books were composed by him. Um, and it's just early history. These aren't things written in the Bible. This is just early history in the second century. It says Polycarp discipled, Polycarp discipled the Apostle John, and by him ordained Bishop of Smyrna, was chief of all Asia, where he saw and had his teachers some of the apostles and of those who had seen the Lord. And 
and um, that's um, Jerome. And so ultimately, because John outlived the rest of the apostles, um, remember Jesus said, there be one of you standing here shall not taste the death, shall he see the coming of the Son of Man. And so you know, some people have speculated, so does that mean that there's some man out there still living today until Jesus returns? I remember, John wrote the book of Revelation. He got to see a revelation of Jesus returning before he even actually does. But in a vision, prophetically, he was able to see. And so um, it's estimated that maybe John died somewhere around 97 or 98 um, AD. And so um, he outlived the other apostles who all died of martyrs' um, um, death. Um, there's a, um, a legend, um, we don't know if it's true or not, but something in history that says that they tried boiling the Apostle John in oil, and that he came out unhurt. I don't know if that's so, or if that's just a, a church just trying to make it let more of a legend happen or not, but it's possible. We do see Jesus did give supernatural um, power to do miracles in his name. Um, we see that, you know, the Apostle Paul was snake, uh, a venomous snake bit him, he threw in the fire, and it did him no harm, so much so that the people thought Paul was a god. Um, um, there's also a revelation that um, they tried to poison John, and it didn't hurt him. And Jesus did talk about how that those that would believe in his name, that some they would try and poison, and it would not um, hurt um, them. And so we do see early on in the church things um, like that would happen. Um, we see that John led back to the faith many of the believers who had been deceived through the persuasion of Marcion and Valentinus. And um, Marcion would be one, I believe it was a Gnostic, um, but he would um, cut out parts of the Bible and just take the parts that he wanted and um, wanted to use to influence his own cult. And, and, and so people, uh, the apostles, or John, um, at least that knew of him, um, con confronted him at different times and, and spoke about him. And, um, and, and when Markian met him by chance, he said, he, Markian says to John, and again, this is just extra biblical tradi tradition, this isn't found in the Bible, um, it's just found in some historical records. But uh, Markian asked him, Do you know us? And then the Apostle John said, I know the firstborn of the devil. And so awareness that Markian would pervert the word of God. Um, and there were other things that um, he would say as well in condemning um, his teachings. Um, we, we see the island of Patmos was um, where John himself going to be a prisoner um, in a dungeon. Um, there when he would write um, the book of Revelation. And again, remember, his thirst for glory is seen in this desire to be chief from this to Jesus. And Jesus asked him, can ye take of the baptism down and be baptized of? The baptism of fire, the baptism of suffering. And it's under, I guess you can, but they weren't ready yet for it. But we do see that John did learn to suffer being arrested um, and put in a dungeon. And um, it's um, very possible 
um, that this is the dungeon, the cave um, that he was arrested and placed in. Um, that's um, one of the few um, that were are on that island. We see he learns to balance the balance of love and truth. First, with love. You see, John at first is placed in the fallen intolerance and he leads them, a lack of genuine love for people. Um, Saying again, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know what manner of spirit of ye are of? I know not. Uh, for the Son of Man does not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went to another village. John is speaking by himself. This, we see a word once of John without James, without Peter, speaking for himself. This is pure John. And he says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him, because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name, that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. And so here, John is like, no, they're not following us. You know, should we shut them up? Jesus, you know, they're not um, against me, they're for us. And you know, you're going to see that sometimes in Christian life. They, you know, it's a ministry we're going to yoga to um, um, with churches that would be of um, like mind. You know, that's where we're going to be putting our resources behind and supporting um, them. That doesn't mean that we think any other type of ministry that may have some differences than us, um, that we think they're of the devil. You know, they may be doing the Lord's work. You know, they can be preaching the gospel and you know, the Apostle Paul spoke of those that would preach the gospel in pretense, that it was more to make a mockery of Paul being in prison. They were mocking his bonds. And so they would go out and preach in Jesus in the sense of mockery. And then he, he's like, you know, whether in pretense or in truth, like I rejoice that the gospel is preached. And he glories in that. That there may be those that, you know what, they, they don't cross their T's and dot their I's exactly like us. And, you know, we want to stand for doctrinal truth. And so that's why we stand for doctrine. And there's a time for exposing mirrors, um, um, false teachings, false doctrine. But there can be times where a church, maybe they have certain false teachings, um, you know, maybe one about such as infant baptism. Uh, you know, now Charles Spurgeon called that a doctrine of devils. Okay, so he was fierce against that doctrine. And the reason being is that many would be baptized as children and think that they're saved because of their baptisms. And not realize they actually need to have a personal faith in Christ. And so he talked about the dangers of that. And the baptism is dangerous in, in, in those ways. And and the false assurances that are sometimes taught and passed on. There's what they call covenant theology. And they're taught, you know what, um, if, uh, if you baptize your children, um, if it's an infant, that they're part of the covenant family, 
And so it's a false teaching. Now, having said that, some of those preachers do preach the gospel. Now, it gets a little bit confused with infant baptism, but they'll sometimes preach that, you know what, that salvation is through Christ, through faith alone. And so, you know, when they preach the gospel, we rejoice in that. We don't count them our enemy. Now, we may, again, we're going to expose the false ways about the infant baptism and show in the Bible about believers' baptism, but we're going to be thankful and rejoice for any that they do lead to the Lord. And so there's a balance um, and all that. And so that's what Jesus is telling John. You know what? Not everyone is going to follow us. But, you know, they're not against Christ. They were doing miracles in Christ's name and stuff. You see here um, in Mark 10, James and John, this of somebody coming to him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may set one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask, and ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, or shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for a few minutes prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And so you see, they had it all backwards. They were looking for the glory. They, um, if they wanted to be first in the kingdom, though Jesus taught them, they needed to be servants. If they wanted to be truly great, they needed to be more childlike. Instead of arguing and fighting with each other. Instead of putting each other down. Instead of rejecting each other and insulting themselves, they needed to learn to love and to serve others first. We do end up seeing through in this transformation that he wrote more than any other New Testament offer about the importance of love. Laying like particular stress on Christ's love for his church, Christians' love for Christ. Love for one another, that is supposed to be the hallmark of true believers. Johnson one that reported the words of Jesus Christ, um, where he says um, that uh, people shall know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And they'll see the love you have for each other, and that's how they'll know you're my disciples. The theme of love flows through his writings. It's kind of odd that at first glance, when he called for, he wanted fire to destroy the Samaritans, he was proud, he wanted to be above all the apostles, he wanted to be the chief apostle, the chief next to Jesus in, 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 the, in the Father's throne. And so, you see now the transformation. These were just ordinary carnal men transformed by the grace of God. You see, but love is, was a quality he learned from Christ, not something that came naturally to him. 
But then you read in his epistles, 1 John 3, 1, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because he did knew him not. In 1 John 3, 16, says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Chapter 4, verse 19, says we love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hate of his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So now John writes about the importance of love. But we see he also had to stand for truth, okay? We live in a day, a society, where some churches are all about love, all about unity. And we're for love, we're for unity. On Wednesday, our Bible study is on the topic of unity. Um, come 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. But there, there's a mistake where people get so much on the side of love that they don't declare the truth. They don't warn people of the wrath to come or the consequences for sin because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. But withholding the truth from people is not loving. One of the preachers uh, that was at the Yakima Bible Baptist Home Missions Conference spoke about how when he was young that he was atheist or at least agnostic and boy there was a likelihood uh, of God and then at other times would be bad and angry at God it's kind of funny an atheist is angry with God but um, uh, we told talk about that and, um, and then eventually uh, and he actually heard the gospel several times before and, and, but then eventually, um, he got saved, and, 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 and after he got saved, though, he was pretty quiet about his faith. He didn't go to church, wasn't involved at all, and then one day, one of his buddies invited him to church. And he was just kind of convicted, he's like, what is this? He goes, here I am. I got saved, and not once did I invite my friend to church or tell him about Jesus. And here he's invited me. You somehow the conviction how he heard the truth, but he withheld the truth. Like Andrew, John, without hesitation, began following Jesus. As soon as John the Baptist singled, singled him out as the true Messiah. John the disciple was interested in the truth. He hadn't followed John the Baptist in order to join a personality cult, so to speak. Therefore, he was willing to leave John the Baptist to follow Jesus as soon as John the Baptist clearly identified him as the Lamb of God. Okay, Initially, John was a disciple of John the Baptist. Follow him, listen to his teachings. But when John the Baptist said, Behold, a greater than I is here, that 
and whose shoe slashes are not worthy to unloose, that he must increase, but I must decrease. John, Mike, Andrew immediately followed um, Jesus. John's love of truth is evident in all of his writings. He uses the Greek word for truth 25 times in this gospel and 20 more times in his epistles. He wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And one of his strongest things is for someone who claimed to be a believer while walking in the darkness was described as a person as a liar. And the truth is not in him, 1 John 2, 4, um, um, chapter 1, verse 6, and verse 8. And so we see though, that love did not nullify the Apostle John's passion for truth. Rather, it gave him the balance he needed. He retained to the end of his life a deep and abiding love for God's truth. And he remained bold in proclaiming it to the very end. When he learned to love like Christ loved, it did not lead him to compromise. It did not lead him to say, doctrine does not matter. You read 1st, 2nd, 3rd Epistle John, and John is very clear about the importance of right biblical doctrine. We see in the God, his gospel, he sets light against darkness, light against death. The kingdom of God against the kingdom of the devil. The children of God against the children of Satan. The judgment of the righteous against the judgment of the wicked. The resurrection of life against the resurrection of damnation. Receiving Christ against rejecting Christ. Fruit against fruitlessness. Of obedience against disobedience. And love against hatred. And so John Silver, the truth, showed say, the way he wrote. Of all the writers of the New Testament, he is probably the one that's most black and white in his thinking. He thinks and writes in an absolute. He deals with certainties. Everything is cut and dry with the Apostle John. There aren't any great areas in his teaching. He understands the necessity of drawing the line. Uh, and so we're going to see some things that he's pretty absolute in. Okay? Um, but you know, you got to read the context to really see the entirety um, of it. One, he writes that believers do not sin. Okay? And do believers sin? Yes. Well, you know, you could kind of go ahead and turn there to uh, 1 John 5 18. John 5.18 says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Okay, so again, you know, if John writes in black and white language and says, Hey, this born of God, sinneth not. But he's talking about the spirit. You know, you're born of God, and you're of a new spirit, as we see that even John himself knows that believers do um, struggle with sin. You just turn to um, chapter 2. So um, that's where it's important to see the context. You know, people say, you know, the Bible contradicts one another. Well, when you see it's the same writer writing this, you know, it's important to go, okay, you know what, you look at the context. 
First uh, John chapter two and verse eight. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate for the Father, with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. And in 1 verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word, his word, is not in us. Okay, so he's writing in the absolute. Okay, one passage he says, he that is born of God, sin of not. And so we see is that, you know, the believer, someone that's truly born again, their life is not going to be marked with sin. That's not what their life should be known for. We see Paul is the apostle of, of exceptions. Paul took the time to explain the struggle of all believers experienced with sin in their lives in Romans 7. Um, well, Paul states that those who are born of God do not continue in habitual sin is a pattern of life. Romans 6, verse 6-7. He also acknowledges that we must still wage war against the remnants of sin in our members, in our body. It says, resist the tendencies of our flesh, put off the old man, put on the new man, and so on. But if we're reading John, one might think that righteousness comes so easily and naturally for the Christian that every failure would be enough to shatter assurance completely. But for Paul and John's epistles are both inspired scripture. Both emphases are necessary. The exceptions dealt with by Paul don't nullify the truth stated so definitely by John. And the relentlessly unequivocal statements of John don't rule out the careful qualifications given by Paul, both for necessary aspects of God's truth. Okay, and they both write, John wrote as well, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But then he goes on and tells us, if one is born again, Things would not be one that's marked by their sin. He says things like, you know, he that says he loves God but hates his brother, the truth is not in him. He says, he talks about loving your neighbor. Now, if you hate your neighbor, then you know you can't really say you love God. Now we see that John doesn't belabor when he develop the point when he says about he is one of God's sin or not, but he's concerned primarily with the overall pattern of a person's life. He wants to underscore the fact that righteousness, not sin, is the dominant principle in a true believer's life. Those who read John carelessly or superficially might almost think he's saying there are no exceptions. Um, I've had someone that I've talked with, counseled with before, that every time, oh, they would tell me that you can get to sinless perfection where you did not sin. And then he would come to me later after he sinned and, and would talk, maybe he lost his salvation. You know, our salvation is not dependent on our works. It's not dependent on us not sinning again. 
Our salvation is purely based on faith in Jesus Christ and what God did for us. And Jesus dying on the cross, and we simply respond with faith. It's not by giving up sin. It's recognizing we are a sinner and asking God for forgiveness, trusting Him by faith. But it's not sin. You know, no, none of us are going to be able to get a point where, hey, we just stop sinning and we earn eternal life. None of us. But there ought to be a repentance in regards to what that we consider ourselves a sinner and that we need a Savior. We see in this second epistle, he calls for complete, total separation from all that is false. Whosoever transgressed and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If they're coming into you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's feet. For he that bid him God's feet is partaker of his evil deeds. Okay, so the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ, Jesus being God in the flesh, being the Son of God. And he says if someone comes and brings not this doctrine um, to, you, to your house, receive them not. You know, and he's, he's writing um, to a lady that, that she often cared for missionaries um, that would come, those that would preach the gospel. She would lodge them in her home and, and feed them um, as they would visit their area and then they would move on. And John gives a warning to her that if they preach another Christ, another gospel, not to receive them in their house and give them God's people. In other words, you maybe don't have people come and stay the night in your house with the world we live in today. But like when Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, okay, it doesn't mean one, doesn't mean you're mean to them, but receive them not. Don't let those false teachings come into your house. And don't say God bless you. You know, you don't want God's blessing upon a false gospel, which for God is in none of us. And so John, even though he was loving, he stood for truth. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. And he spends his first half of the epistle urging them to walk in love as well. So he's thankful they were found walking in truth and also urges them to walk in love as well. He reminds them of the new commandment, which of course is not really new, but simply restates the commandment we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay, so he urges this woman that he's writing to and her children not to only continue walking in truth, but also remember that the sum and substance of God's law is love. The first commandment is what? Love the Lord thy God with all your being. Second, love thy neighbor as thyself. John balances that emphasis on love in the second half of the epistle by urging this woman not to compromise her love by receiving and blessing false teachers who undermine the truth. John was always committed to the truth. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but it's not enough. In 
just like the Apostle Paul wrote. If I um, give my body and be burned, if I, if I understand all mysteries, if I understand all prophecies, if I have not charity, I am nothing. It's just making a bunch of noise. And, and so John likewise. You know, many people are just as imbalanced as John was in his early years. Only in the other direction. They often place either too much emphasis on the side of love and unity, or too much on the side of truth and have no love. Some are married or under certain seed, still others do not care about that which is true. In each case, truth is missing, and all they are left with is their clothed in a shallow, tolerant unity. It's a poor substitute for genuine love. They talk a lot about love and tolerance, but they utterly lack any concern for the truth. One person said it this way, truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. On the other hand, love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. And so the zeal for the truth must be balanced by the love of God flowing through us in loving people. Real love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. The Bible says, charity rejoiceth in the truth, rejoices not in iniquity. And so when you love someone, it does not mean you love them in a sense and thinking that their lifestyle is acceptable. If it's not, real love does not rejoice in iniquity. John used the word truth some 45 times in this gospel and epistles. But he used the word love more than 80 times. He learned to love others as the Lord had loved him. Love became the anchor and centerpiece of the truth he was most concerned with. John's theology is best described as the theology of love. He taught that God is the God of love, that God loved his own son, that God loved the world, that God is loved by Christ, that Christ loved his disciples, that Christ's disciples love him, that all men should love Christ, that we should love one another, that love fulfills the law. Love was a critical part of every element of John's teaching. It was the dominant theme of his theology. But again, remember he did not start out that way. So there may be people in your life that you need to love them towards the gospel. And again, there are others who have all their theological ducks in a row and know their doctrine, but they're unloving and self-exalted. Um, Ephesians 4, 13. Go ahead and turn there. We're almost done. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 13. It says, Tell me of all come in unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head even Christ. To the Apostle Paul. See the importance 
of love and truth. That we speak the truth, but we speak it in love as well. But truth must be spoken. Now, the preacher's job isn't to preach just to try and condemn people. Now, sometimes things to preach and use the law to show, yes, we all fall short, and that's why we need Jesus as our Savior. The law condemns, but Jesus brings life. John's love never caused him to depart from standing from the truth. To the very end of his life, John was still a thunderous defender of the truth. He lost none of his intolerance for the lies. And his epistles written near the end of his life, he was still thundering out against false Christologies. Those that would say that Jesus was not God in the flesh. He combated that. He confronted that. Um, he wrote against anti-Christian deceptions. Um, wrote against sin and against immorality. And there's a passage that we have just read about speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things. So as we said, to share Christ's likeness is the perfect expression of truth, the perfect expression of love. He's our model. And so it's wonderful to have a high regard for the truth, but the zeal for the truth must be balanced by a love for people. Or it can give way to judgmentalism, harshness, and a lack of compassion. Truth is never to be abandoned in the name of love, but love is not to be deposed in the name of truth. That is what John learned from Christ. And it gave him the balance he so desperately needed. In a sense, John was the son of thunder to the end. The Lord knew that the most powerful advocate of love needed to be a man who never compromised the truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the word of God. And I thank you, Lord, for you tempering me, Lord. To still speak the truth, but to have a more loving disposition in it. And I pray in that, O oh Lord, that I would continue to speak the truth. And no matter sometimes many things are being judged just because we speak the truth. And so there's going to sometimes be those accusations, but may we still be willing to speak the truth, but may it be demonstrated with a spirit of love, a care. Uh, spirit of compassion. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we see you glorified in our life this week. And may our life be transformed by the truth of your word um, and make us disciples of people that show love in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, next week, um, we will do part two. Um, Wednesday, Bible study on unity. Um, God bless you. Shake hands. Fellowship be free. Be sure to say goodbye to the refs and Marianne. It's their last Sunday with us. Until um, we meet again. Um, when do you come back? Summer, not spring? April. 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 All right. So I'm going to be back in April. But be sure to say goodbye to the